This is Real Estate Rookie episode 316. What I do put in my lease agreements is that if somebody does break a lease, that the rule is they do have to cover the rent until somebody else moves in or their lease agreement ends. So we also have in the lease agreement, if you do break your lease early, you automatically forfeit your security deposit. In my opinion, I would say it's not worth going after them. I would, you know, 100% send them an invoice. If you have their forwarding address, you might as well attempt to charge them. My name is Ashley Kerr, and I'm here with my co-host, Tony Robinson. And welcome to the Real Estate Rookie Podcast, where every week, twice a week, we bring you the inspiration, motivation, and stories you need to hear to kickstart your investing journey. We are back with another Rookie Reply episode. We've got some great questions for you guys today. We got two questions about partnerships to kind of kick things off. And if you guys haven't yet, uh, Ashley and I co-authored a book. It is called Real Estate Partnerships how to access more cash, acquire bigger deals, and achieve higher profits, published by Bigger Pockets, um, And we go all into, into the nitty gritty of building out your own real estate partnership. So if you guys haven't picked up this book yet, head over to biggerpockets.com slash partnerships and pick up your copy. And then we round out the episode by talking about what should you do when someone breaks a lease and should you be going after that tenant for the lost revenue? Uh, we talk about the importance of having a CPA and why waiting until tax season to hire that person is probably a step too late. And we finish off by talking about uh, the kind of ins and outs and fees that come along with hiring a property manager, what's fair, what's reasonable, and what you should expect as a rookie investor. Okay. For this week's Instagram shout out, I want to give a shout out to Homegrown Investing Co. This is Gabby and Sierra. They are childhood best friends, mamas, and business partners in their real estate investing. So they go through and they are sharing their journey as to why they invest, how to save money on furnishings, and just real estate investing tips for beginners. So make sure you go and check them out and give them a follow. If you would like to be featured as the Instagram of the week, uh, please use the hashtag real estate rookie and tag Tony and I in your post. All right. Now, I also want to give a shout out to someone that left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, This person goes by the username of Coach Mick. And Coach Mick says, this podcast is exactly what it sounds like, a resource for rookies. So refreshing to have an honest place to learn and grow. It's a perfect balance between advice, examples, inspiration, and fun. After listening for a few months, I finally had the courage to buy my first property. Wouldn't have taken the leap without listening to relatable rookies on the podcast. So thank you, Bigger Pockets, Tony and Ashley, and all of the guests who are willing to share their story. I never thought I could get into real estate being a teacher in Colorado, but this podcast showed me that there's always a way. I appreciate you guys. Guys, this is probably one of the coolest uh, reviews that I've read recently. It's it, it's for exactly you know reviews like this that motivates us to continue to do this show because we know that there are folks out there that don't have a community. There are folks out there that aren't seeing their close friends and family building real estate businesses. But when you can hear day after day, week after week, while you're driving in the car, at the gym, shopping for groceries, whatever it is, you can hear stories of everyday people finding success it shows you that it really is attainable. So uh, Coach Mick, kudos to you. Super excited to hear that story. And for all of our rookies that are listening, if you haven't yet, share your success story with us in the reviews as well. Leave uh, a story about how the show helped you and uh, we'd love to to read it on the podcast as well. Are current interest rates making you depressed about cash flow? What if it didn't have to be that way? Rent to Retirement has 2.99% seller financing available on turnkey properties. You heard that right. 
That's a seller-financed 2.99% interest rate where the average cash flow is over $900 per month. They also have options where you can put as low as 5% down on multiple investment properties with no PMI. Rent to Retirement is the nation's leading turnkey investment company that understands what it takes to be successful in today's dynamic real estate market. Their reputation speaks for itself with more five-star reviews than any other company on the Bigger Pockets website. Rent to Retirement offers fully turnkey properties that are newly built or renovated, leased and managed, allowing you to invest with confidence in the markets that offer the best returns. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's rent. T-O, retirement.com, or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777. You ever feel like your vacation rental sits empty too often? Missing out on potential income? Look, you're not alone. Many property owners struggle with underperforming bookings and the complexities of property management. But here's some good news. Vacasa outperforms other property managers in 92% of the markets they operate. They've helped homeowners like you increase their bookings by an average of 24%, turning those empty days into profitable opportunities. Want to see what your earnings could look like with Vacasa? Visit biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa, spelled V-A-C-A-S-A, and get a free personalized income estimate today. That's biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high-quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal Do Not Call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. Okay, so our first question is from JP Bailey. How do you network and partner with more experienced investors when you feel you have nothing to add value? I'm aware that this might just be me being too hard on myself. And yes, I would agree with you, JP. (laughs) So how to network with people and find more experienced investors when you feel like you have nothing to add to value. And there probably is some value that you have, but it is very easy to think that there is no value um, added, especially when you're just starting out. You might think, I've never even done a deal. How can I be of value to another investor? First of all, you can network without having to provide any value. Just going to meetups, uh, messaging people online and asking questions. Yes, you're going to build more of a connection, most likely, if you are able to add value. Tony always gives such a great example of how he was able to network before he actually made a deal. And that was from making a podcast about uh, getting your first deal done, where Tony was able to network with somebody who had at least done one deal and get them onto the podcast. And he was able to, I'm sure Tony learned a ton. 
Yeah. I mean, it, you know, a big part of the reason why I started that podcast was to network. Like my logic was, uh, you know, initially I was putting out three episodes a week. I was like, okay, if I interview three people a week for an entire year, there's over 150 people that I'm going to meet that are active real estate investors. Like my network network is going to explode. So that was a, a big motivating factor for me was just kind of building out the network. But I, I think, you know, just like you said, uh, Ash, I think JP's been a little bit too hard on himself. Like you, everyone has value that they can provide. Uh, even if you don't necessarily have experience JP with real estate, like you haven't done a deal yet, there's still tons of ways that you can provide value to other more experienced investors. So I think my first question is, uh, do you have the ability to walk? <laughs> or or just be mobile in any way, shape, or form. Because if you do, say you live in a neighborhood, uh, maybe you could walk around that neighborhood and find uh, distressed properties. And you're just, you know, instead of driving for dollars, you're literally just walking around the neighborhood. We have guests in the podcast that, you know, they would take their morning stroll with their dog or whatever, and they found deals doing that. Uh, same thing if you can drive, hop in your car and just drive around neighborhoods and look for deals and houses that look kind of old and beat up and capture those addresses. Um, that's a great way to, to partner and provide value to a potential real estate investor. Um, uh, just as, as an example, something that just happened recently in my own business. Um, we had one of our events this past weekend. And at that event, uh, one of the attendees there, uh, she has a ton of I mean, not necessarily investing experience, but a ton of real estate experience where she works for a, a builder in her hometown and she managed, she's like a project manager for this builder. And I was like, man, that's an incredible skill set. But she's like, yeah, but I just don't feel confident like investing in real estate. It was, you do it every day in your day job. And it's people have that same kind of limiting belief all the time where they don't realize how their skills from the rest of their life kind of translate to the world of real estate investing. That was just like at a BPCon last year. We, you know, asked everyone in the room, like, you know, who doesn't think they have any value to add? You know, somebody up front raised their hand. We said, okay, what do you do for a living? Same answer. I'm a project manager. So then we said, how many of you would love a project manager on your team? And, you know, almost every hand went up. So I think uh, really taking, you know, your W-2 job or even past experiences that you have had um, and kind of you know, look at those and be like, what did I learn from that? What kind of skill set do I have um, that can be incorporated into real estate? Because real estate is a lot of different kind of aspects tied together. It's a, it can be a people person business. So if you are great at, you know, talking with people, you're great with customer service and you can build a connection with someone Okay, you're great to go talk to potential sellers and get them to sell the house. You'd be a great property manager. You have patience. You can connect with people. You can talk with them. Communications. So there's so many different kind of skill sets that you can have that you can bring value to the table. So I challenge you to sit down right now and start making a list of some of those attributes that you have and that you're really good at. And don't focus on an actual job. Think about what you do well for your personality. Um, maybe take a personality test, like the disc profile and kind of use that to gauge, like, I'd be really good at doing this because of my personality and what my strengths and weaknesses are too. Yeah. I guess last thing I'd add, Ash, is like for you, JP, when you're thinking about the different things that you can do, there's really kind of three major buckets, right? You have your acquisitions activities, you have your operations activities, and then you kind of have like your finance slash admin stuff. So, and you know, I'll use a few different asset classes as an example. So in the Airbnb space, acquisitions could be 
networking with realtors, uh, networking with brokers. If it's like a, a commercial property, uh, networking with wholesalers, if we're trying to find something that's, that's value add. So you don't even necessarily need to be the person that's like, quote unquote, finding the deals, but you're just building relationships with people that have access to those deals. And then using that as your, your way to find, uh, find those opportunities. And then on the operational component, someone's got to manage the, the guest communication. Someone's got to manage the cleaners and the maintenance staff. Someone's got to do all the, the pricing and the software and all those things. And then on the finance side, someone's got to make sure that the books are clean, right? That you have good, clean books you can pass off to your uh, to your CPA at the end of the year. Someone's got to make sure that uh, the utilities are set up and getting paid, that the the taxes are being paid if you're not doing it uh, through your uh, through your mortgage provider. So every single type of real estate investing has buckets. Um, another example would be flipping. Uh, or let's, let's do wholesaling even, cause that, that's, a, that's even a little bit more different. Say that you're on the acquisition side of a wholesale transaction. You're the person that's, uh, reaching out to the sellers. It could be text. It could be email. It could be phone calls. It could be door knocking, direct mail, whatever strategy you want to use, but you're there, uh, you know, conversing with the sellers to find those deals. The operational side will be, okay, now that we've got this deal under contract, how do we actually disposition this thing, right? Like how do we, how do we make our money on this deal? So you're networking with buyers, you're out there going to real estate meetups and, you know, meeting flippers and long-term buy and hold people that you can add to your buyers list. And then when the property comes in on the acquisition side, you're working to dispo that with those buyers that you've built up. And then same thing, the finance and admin would be like the bookkeeping and making sure everything looks, looks clean and good there. So there's so many different activities involved in a real estate transaction. And if you can specialize in one of those, that's how you provide value to a, a more experienced real estate investor. So Ash, let me ask you, uh, what's one thing a rookie could do today that would help you in your business? Uh, my social media. <laughs> I think that is something that I, I find difficult to outsource because you want to find somebody that is typically a the same personality as you, because if somebody starts commenting and sharing stuff with descriptions and things like that, and people are like, okay, this is not Ashley because it's literally different than everything she's been posting about on the last uh, five years. So I think that that's definitely one thing. Um, that I would need right now. Uh, just a funny story about like, you know, social media. So I have someone on my team that helps with social. And um, if you guys haven't noticed, I, I have black thumbs, uh, you know, <laughs> kind of kind of part of my identity. And uh, when I first hired my social media girl, uh, she kept using white thumbs. And I was like, I get what you're trying to do. I was like, but I don't, I think people might know it's not me if the thumbs, if the thumbs aren't black. Um, so I, I get what you're saying. There, there is a bit of a learning curve there. Um, but I, I think somewhere that I need help in my business, and this has always been true is just finding good deals. Like if someone brings me a good deal, that's the the easiest and fastest way for us to partner on a deal together. Um, so I actually have a deal in a contract right now that someone sent to me through Instagram. Uh, so, hey, if you're listening to this and you want to partner with me, send me a good deal at Tony J. Robinson. Love to take a look at it. Okay. So our next question is from Isaac Brummer. When partnering up, what are the benefits, drawbacks of getting pre-approved together versus individually? Shouldn't your debt to income be the same individually as it is together? Well, this question has come to the right place. Tony and I have wrote the real estate partnerships book, uh, so we should be able to answer your question. But if you guys haven't checked it out yet, you can find it at biggerpockets.com slash bookstore, and you can find it on there. And um, 
It launches August 10th. I'm not sure when this episode comes out, if that's a bo- before or after that, but I think it's around that. So you should be able to get on the bookstore. And then um, it launches in September on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. But you can still pre-order from there. Okay, so drawbacks and benefits of getting pre-approved together versus individually. My advice would be for somebody to get pre-approved on their own first and see if you actually need the other person to get pre-approved with you. So there are lending limitations that, you know, one person can only have so many conventional loans under them. I think it's at like 10 right now, but also it's very hard to get to that 10 and stay under the debt to income ratio. Also, like say you have a thousand dollar mortgage payment and you Tony and I both go on the debt together. That $1,000 counts towards both of our debt to income. So both of our debt to income ratio. So if you can eliminate that because we're, we're not married. So if Tony goes off and buys another deal and he's showing that he has that mortgage on a property that's going to count towards his debt to income, even though I own half of that, that's not going to, when they pull that, that on his credit report, it's not going to show that I also own a portion of that debt. Yeah. And I, I just want to define both of these terms that, that Isaac brought up for our rookies that may not be familiar with it. So uh, he talked about pre-approvals and he talked about DTI. So DTI stands for debt to income ratio. Uh, and basically what this is, it's a measurement of the, uh, I guess, like comparing your income towards your debt repayments. So lenders, banks, when they're looking at, or creditors in general, really, when they're looking at approving you for a loan, they'll say, how much money does Tony make? And how much debt payment does Tony have to make on a monthly basis? So say, for example, I have income of $1,000 a month, and I have debt payments of $600 per month, then my DTI is 60% right? 60% of my income is going towards debt repayments, which is pretty high. Or say I made $1,000 per month and my debt payments were uh, $200 per month, then my DTI would be 20%, right? 200 is 20% of 1,000. So my DTI would be 20%, which is a healthy DTI. Um, So that's usually what lenders are looking at. They want to see how much do you make versus how much do you have to spend. Um, And again, the higher your DTI, the harder it is for you to get approved for additional mortgages because banks might see that you're overextending yourself. The, the second thing that Isaac mentioned was the pre-approval. So most lenders you can go uh, to and, and they'll, they'll quote unquote pre-approve you. Basically, it's a it's kind of a, a quick look at your credit profile and it gives an understanding of like, hey, here's generally how much we think we can qualify you for uh, to actually purchase a property. Now, a pre-approval is not a final approval, which is why it's called the pre-approval. When you actually get a property under contract, uh, most lenders will then open up a pretty thorough kind of underwriting process for you and the property to make sure that everything checks out. But the pre-approval at least gives you a ballpark in terms of uh, what is your purchasing power and what kind of loan amounts can you get approved for. Hiring? Your search is over. Really, there's no need to search. Match instead with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates super fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, 
screening and messaging to hire top talent faster. Speaking of top talent, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. But why do I love Indeed? Because I'm busy and scrolling through 300 resumes is not helping my business grow. It's actually making it slow. With Indeed, I can hire faster and know I'm getting someone who can do the job. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to post your jobs with more visibility at Indeed.com slash rookie. Just go to Indeed.com slash rookie right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash rookie. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I'm curious. Have you been struggling to keep your vacation rental booked? I totally get it. It's tough to manage and keep filled. But we found something that really works. It's called Vacasa. They've seriously changed the game for a lot of the BP audience. In almost every market they're in, Vacasa manages to fill up the calendar more than anyone else. And get this, the average Vacasa user sees about 24% more bookings than with other managers. That's a lot of extra income. Curious to see what you could be earning? You can get a personalized income estimate right there. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at what Vacasa can do for you. Check out biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa, spelled V-A-C-A-S-A, biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa. Whether you need to buy or sell or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin's got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes to help you see new homes first. And they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like, so you can find the home that's just right for you, whether that's a cabin, a craftsman, or a castle. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours, even the same day, with a local Redfin agent who can help guide you through the whole home buying process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents have the experience to help get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put towards what matters most to you, like your next home. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. Okay, our next question is from Keely Wood. I have a rental where someone broke the lease and decided to move out early. I have found new tenants, but there is a seven-day lapse between the two leases to do repairs and clean. Would you tell the previous tenants they had to owe rent for those seven days since technically they broke the lease and moved out early? Or just chalk it up to less rent for the the month due to turnover? Tony, did you ever have this happen when you had long-term rentals? You know, when when we had our long-terms, I was pretty... Uh, removed from the process, like my <laughs> no, property yeah. managers did everything, so yeah. I couldn't even tell you. Uh, but I, I can just say from from my own perspective right now, like if I was dealing with this today, um, I probably wouldn't chase after them for seven days. Um, I, I don't know if it's even worth the headache, especially if they're the kind of tenant that you know kind of broke the lease without really giving you a bunch of heads up. They probably strike me as the kind of tenant that might be hard to chase down for seven days worth of rent. Um, but you, Ashley, are the long-term rental queen here. So I'm curious what your take is. So I just did it like $1,000 divided by 30 days would end up being $33 for the day. So, you know, 33 times seven, $233 is what you'd be going after them for. I would say that's definitely not a substantial amount to like actually go after and seek a judgment against them. What I do put in my lease agreements is that if somebody does break a lease that the rule is they do have to cover the rent until somebody else moves in or their lease agreement ends. But per New York state law, you have to actively market the unit right now, seven days. It's that that's filling your unit 
pretty fast and you're able to get your turnover. That's amazing. That's great. Um, sometimes when you get that short of notice, it's a lot harder to line up somebody in seven days. I did have somebody that did the same thing, called my property manager and said, you know what? I'm just, what's going to happen to me? I'm moving out in three days. And it was the end of the month. And so we also have in the lease agreement, if you do break your lease early, you automatically forfeit your security deposit. So that's what we told this resident is that, you know, we would just keep their security deposit. Unfortunately, they left all of their furniture and all of their belongings also. So I actually just got the the quote sent to me and it's going to be $2,200 just to have our dumpster removal company come in, clear all the contents out um, and just put it into the dumpster and take it off. So that's not even part of the turnover process. So their security deposit definitely doesn't cover that. In my opinion, I would say it's not worth going after them. I would you know, 100% send them an invoice. If you have their forwarding address, you might as well attempt to charge them for those seven days. But as far as going after them, you know, seeking a judgment against them, a lot of property management software, if you're using that, actually has collections built into it. So you pay a large percentage of that to the collection company. But to me, it's more of the, the principal um, than me actually getting all of the money to where if somebody doesn't pay it, it is turned over to collections when they do vacate the property. Yeah. I'd agree with you. You got to ask yourself if the, uh, if the juice is worth the squeeze, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and in some situations it's not, you just kind of got to chalk it up as all part of, part of doing business. Okay. Our next question is from Victoria Waters. How did you go about finding a CPA versed in real estate? This is our first year filing after starting this in Denver, and we only have one property, but are struggling to find any sort of tax breaks via TurboTax. So naturally, we'd like to see if a CPA could be of any assistance. Is it normal to owe taxes your first year? You're talking a little over $1,400 here. So Tony, let's start with the first question. How did you go about finding a CPA versed in real estate? So my first CPA was my parents' CPA. <laughs> then my second CPA was my husband's CPA. And um, so that's currently the same one I use. And then next year I will be transferring um, to Amanda Hahn, who I think you use. And that's just a well-known real estate CPA in the real estate investing community. But as far as finding someone local to you or someone else out there, there are a couple major questions I think you should ask, or at least one important one, because you can go to a CPA and say, do you know anything about real estate investing? Can you help me with my taxes? I'm a real estate investor. They can say yes. But what you should be asking is you need to learn how to ask the right questions. And this, we always say this with other kind of service providers too, is to how many clients are real estate investors or have rental properties or flip houses or whatever your strategy is? Ask them that. And then ask what kind of tax advantages are your clients getting right now? Because one huge advantage of hiring a CPA that is well known for real estate investing is that they are going to be able to tell you what tax advantages and what strategies are available to you instead of you spending so much time and having to come and tell your CPA, well, I want to be labeled as a real estate professional because of the tax strategies. So 
you know, this is what I want to do. Here's how you do it. Or, you know, I want to, you know, do a cost segregation. So I here you need to do this for it or whatever. And telling your CPA what kind of tax advantages you want. You want to hire them because you want them to do that work for you. So um, if you, I think asking questions the right way, instead of just, oh, do you work with real estate investors and them saying yes, make sure you're wording your questions so that you're getting more than a yes or no answer. That's yeah, a great point, Ashley. I think the only thing that I'd add to that is, uh, and, and it sounds like the person that asked this question, she, I mean, she said she's already filing her taxes. The sad truth here is that, um, you know, when you're at the point of filing your taxes, it's it's too late at that point to try and change how much you owe. I mean, there might be some slight deductions and things that you can take, but uh, at that point, you know, what you owe is what you owe. And that brings up an important distinction between tax prep and tax strategy. So tax preparation is you handing all of your documents, your P&Ls, closing disclosures, et cetera, uh, off to your CPA and, and then just filing that information that you've given them to calculate how much you either owe or, or how much you'll be getting back. Tax strategy, on the other hand, is you working with your CPA throughout the year to try and actively take steps to minimize the amount of taxes that you'll owe for that specific year. So, uh, you know, my CPA and I, we meet, I'd say like once a quarter to kind of review P&Ls and kind of where the business is heading to strategize to say, okay, what do we need to do to make sure that we're not giving more money to the government than we actually need to? Um, and, you know, obviously that's one of the benefits of real estate is that there are tons of legal tax loopholes that allow us to pay nothing in taxes and a good CPA will not just file your taxes at the end of the year, but will give you that strategy throughout the year to maximize those tax loopholes. So then kind of the tail end of this question is, is it normal to owe taxes your first year? We are talking a little over $1,400 here. That is very hard for us to answer. And I'm so sorry I hate to give that answer, but it depends because your whole tax situation could have so many different variables as to what are your W-2 jobs? Are you, you know, do you have high withholdings in your paychecks that there's already taxes taken out? You know, what the actual profit and loss was on the property, you know, how much was taken for depreciation, things like that. So we really can't give you an answer on that because it depends on every income stream that you have coming in right now. And also, you know, do you have kids where you're able to get, you know, some of the tax advantages of having kids like the child tax credit, things like that. So unfortunately, we can't give you an answer as to if that's common. One thing I would say is that I would rather owe $1,400 than get $1,400 back at tax season. And that reason is, is because no matter what, you are going to owe X amount of dollars to the IRS. So if you get that refund, that means you overpaid them $1,400. And within the last year, you gave them an interest-free loan of $1,400 for 0%. And if you owe them $1,400, then you just got an interest-free loan for 0%. So I, that's the way I look at it. I mean, obviously the ultimate goal is to break even so you don't owe any taxes. Um, but yeah, I try not to. And that's where it comes into advantage to doing tax planning and getting that strategy so that you don't owe a ton of money that you're not expecting at the end of the year, but also that you're not getting a huge refund where you could have started investing in real estate earlier because you had that money earlier in the year. 
Okay, and our last question today is from Anthony Roberts. For those who use property management companies, what do you pay? So Anthony is wondering, what about a setup cost, a new lease, a lease renewal? Um, do they pay for vacancy or not? Monthly cost? Any other maintenance charges such as on Section 8 or adding surcharges for maintenance calls or paying bills? Also wondering, do you get charged if a tenant requests paperwork for rental assistance to be filled out? These are great questions. Things that I wouldn't even have thought of to ask. But that's like the thing is so many property management companies are different as to what they charge and also who they charge. So example, that last one, that request to have them fill out rental paperwork assistance. I've never thought of that. I think when I hired a property management company, I think that was always baked into the fee, but that's definitely something that could be charged as like an admin cost to you um, as the owner of the property. I think at least in New York state, I believe it would be illegal to charge the tenant that fee to have their paperwork sent into to section eight for assistance. So Tony, let's start with you. And when you had your property management company. Yeah. So mine, mine was pretty straightforward. So again, they were only managing a, a few properties for us in the long-term rental side. We self-manage all of our, our short-term rentals, but, uh, on that lease agreement, they did charge us a fee for lease up. Um, I want to say it was like either 50% of the first month's rent or some percentage of, of what they collected for the, for the month's rent. Um, there was a renewal fee as well. So if they renewed a lease, there was another fee for that as well. Um, they, this paid for vacancy or not, I'm not quite sure what that means, Anthony, but, um, yeah, I mean, if the property was vacant, we weren't paying the the property manager, at least in, in my lease. Um, there was no like quote unquote monthly cost, but their fee was 10% of the rent, but they capped it at $100 per unit, which I thought was pretty fair for that market. Um, and it, it, this wasn't necessarily with the property management company, but the property management company also had a maintenance, uh, like sister company. And whenever they would kind of give me options, it's like, Hey, you know, either go find three quotes or here's a quote from our maintenance company. And obviously I think most owners are going to go with their, their maintenance folks as well. So I think that's where we, we probably saw more of those kind of like nitpicky charges was with the maintenance company, you know, cause there's a, a fee to send them out. There's a fee for them to do the work and you know, the material costs. So I think that's where we kind of got beat up more on the fees was with the maintenance side and not necessarily the actual property management fees. Yeah. I actually talked to somebody who was a maintenance coordinator at the property management company I was using. And she said that like, all their money is made on the maintenance side that there's not that much in the actual property managements, the maintenance and the turnovers, the remodels, things like that. Uh, so the property management company I was working with, they charge their property management fee plus $25 a month per a building. So that covered, um, any, um, you know, after hours, emergency maintenance calls on at nights or on weekends. So you were never upcharged for, you know, a maintenance tech going out to a property because you already paid that monthly fee every, every month that $25 per a building. So, um, the, let's see the next thing, uh, a new lease that was one month's rent. Um, and then there was no fee for any renewal. As far as the paid for vacancy, one thing I thought of when I read this too, that because I, I was a little confused at first, is I had went to uh, Texas and interviewed a property management company there before, and they actually had kind of like programs you could sign up for. So you paid more, but they would guarantee 
that if there was a vacancy for so many days or whatever, they would actually pay the rent to you. So it was almost like insurance on the property, but you had to pay more of a, a percentage every month to kind of get that, that uh, benefit of it, I guess. And you could sign up for the different tiers and there was three tiers and, you know, each had different elements kind of, you know, put into it in them. You know, if you wanted more security that you were going to have rental income coming in every month, then you were paying, I think, 12% compared to, to 10%. And then as far as maintenance charges, the the maintenance, I think, was like $55 an hour, maybe. I'm not clear on that. But one big difference that I learned to to ask when you're interviewing property management companies is who's actually going to the property. The property manager, we use the, the tenant said that they, she had never been on the property, never even set foot there. Okay, so anytime an appraiser, an inspector, a contractor had to be met at the property, or it was either it was the maintenance guy and we were charged the hourly rate. So if there are things that you think should be the property manager's job and baked into your percentage, like these are things to call out as to like what you're actually going to be charged for, for who's doing what work. And then there was the leasing agent who would do the showings, obviously, and the move-ins and the moves out that were just part of the the leasing fee. There was no additional charge there. And then I don't believe I never saw any additional charges for doing the payables that was baked into the property management fee. And then also uh, a tenant request uh, for paperwork for assistance that was also included in the property management fee. Uh, one other fee, actually, that um, we we found out later on that we didn't ask the right questions was there actually was a project management fee on uh, turnovers. So they would uh, do an estimate or doing a remodel on a unit and it would be their maintenance guys performing that. But then also they would tack on a project management fee. And I think it ended up being like 10%. It was for that. Okay. Well, thank you guys so much for listening to this week's Rookie Reply. I'm Ashley at Wealth From Rentals and he's Tony at Tony J. Robinson. Make sure you check out our new book, Real Estate Partnerships, available at biggerpockets.com, Amazon, and Barnes and Noble. And we'll see you guys back here on Wednesday. Getting started in real estate can be daunting. There's so much to know, obstacles to overcome, lessons to learn, and risks to avoid. It can all be so overwhelming. If you're feeling motivated to invest, but too overwhelmed to take action, here's some advice. Take it one step at a time. And here's some good news for you. The Rookie Bootcamp is starting on May 20th, and Tyler and Ashley will be guiding you through each and every step until you're the proud, confident owner of your first investment property. Through eight action-packed weeks, they'll guide you step-by-step through those first questions, decisions, and obstacles that every beginner investor must overcome. So if you're serious about becoming an investor this year, head to biggerpockets.com step and join us in the Rookie Bootcamp. See you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.